Good morning. Give me one second to grab. Okay, great to be with you. Sorry for that awkward transition for me to still grab my things. And um, This mic is great at picking up every breath, isn't it? <laughs> Five weeks ago, we started in Colossians, and we have, uh, after today, four more weeks still. And as we have looked at the beginning of Colossians, throughout chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, the focus has overwhelmingly been on Jesus, his preeminence. He was before all things. In him and through him, all things that were made were made. They were made by him. They were made for him. They were made in him. And as we move into chapter six of, or chapter, verse 6 of chapter 2, we're going to see Paul pivot and begin to build on what is the expression that he's calling the believers in Colossae? How is he asking them to live, to live out, to be transformed in their mind, in their actions, in their radical living as a result of who Jesus is? You know, when I was seven years old, I had this incredible Schwinn Stingray bike. And this really is almost an exact picture, except my front wheel was the same size as the back wheel. And this was an incredible bike. So this, the, there's a five-speed stick shift on the crossbar there. This is a bike. Now, when I got this bike, I couldn't have been more excited. I got it for my sixth birthday, and oh, I would just look at that bike and picture myself riding that bike. Well... A year later, that's still pretty much my relationship with this amazing bike because I didn't know how to ride it still one year later. So I was first born, and I was, um, I, I was, I was cautious, and um, I, I didn't want training wheels after a while because I'm like, I've, now I'm seven years old, and how, you know I can't have training wheels now, and I don't want to ask my dad for help. And so I would... Uh, with, we lived in Illinois, and we had a basement like everyone else in the rest of the world, pretty much outside of Texas, has a basement under their house. And so in the basement, I would sit with this incredible bike, and I'd be on it, and I'd have one hand on the left handlebar, and I'd have my right hand on the bar of our kitchen downstairs there. And I would let go and put both hands on the handlebars and try to balance it in place. Well, I'd never crash. It was incredibly safe. <laughs> but I... I definitely was not riding this bike. Well, my little brother, Jim, who was three years younger than me, he had training wheels on his little bitty bike, and he would just ride it as hard as he could all over the place. And he would be laughing and squealing. And one day he's riding it so hard that the, the training wheels, they just come off. And he doesn't even know it. He's just, and, now he, and once he did, he's really screaming delight. Well, I'm watching this happen because it's in, it's in a, a, a paved playground on some asphalt, and I'm just sunk. My three-year, 
three years younger brother is riding his bike, and he didn't even he didn't even try. Well, I realize now, you know, it's like he actually tried so much more than I did, and he was he was experiencing just the torque of his pedals and how fun it was to get from one place to another, you know, and it's like here I sat in my basement on this incredible bike. I think that my brother, he was really, really living, wasn't he? He was living out the purpose of that bike, and not only the purpose of the bike, but he was experiencing, he was stepping out in faith, he was stepping out in zeal, and he had a lot more opportunity for harm than I did, um, and he loved every minute of it. Go ahead with the next slide. Today, as we look at Colossians 2, our focus, as it has been throughout Colossians, is going to be in him. And in verse 6, we'll see, and if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Colossians 2, and we'll begin with verse 6. In verse 6, Paul says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, Continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Let me also go to the next slide. I want to show you these two verses in the message. So the message is a, is a paraphrase of the New Testament. It's, it's, it's written by Eugene Peterson, and... Sometimes he really pulls some things out, and he says, he says this in these two verses about living in thankfulness. He said, my counsel for you, Colossians, you believers in Colossia, for you, my counsel is simple and straightforward. Just go ahead with it, what you've been given. You received Christ Jesus, the Master. Now live in him. You're deeply rooted in him. You're well constructed upon him. You know your way around the faith. Now do what you've been taught. School's out. Quit studying the subject and start living it, and yet your living spill over into thanksgiving. I would only take exception to his last point of, of quit studying the subject, which is Jesus Christ here, and I, but his, his emphasis is on, okay, you've been sitting on this bike, you've received from Christ everything, our, our position. We are in him redeemed, forgiven, promised, eternity. We've entered into relationship with him and, he's, and, and now Paul is reminding the believers, so live in him. Or sometimes the, the word live is translated walk. So live in him, walk in him, live out in him. Live your life in him. Step out, embark, step into, step out. Live in him. But look how he caps it at the end. He says... Live in Him with thanksgiving. How do we live with thanksgiving? Well, when I think about our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with the God who, have, who has created the universe, God is righteous, and He desires righteousness from all of His creation. But the problem is, we aren't righteous, are we? That is why, in fact, Jesus came because we, we, we fail to meet his righteous standard for us. Thankfulness, gratitude, 
only occurs with acknowledgement, right? It's like when we receive something, there's an acknowledgement that we've received it. When, when it's going to be 80 degrees on Thursday, that will be something to be thankful for. But there's an acknowledgement, ah, this feels nice. I like this. And acknowledgement, acknowledgement about what we've, you know, when we've received a gift, whether it's something tangible and generous or a gift of kindness, a gift of deference toward me, a gift of service by someone else. My gratitude, my thankfulness is in response to acknowledging, wow, that is good. Thank you. Thank you. I am glad for that. You know, two days ago, I visited my mom. My father passed away a couple of months ago, and I've been seeing her a lot more often. And one of the things my mom does, because she loves to do it, and, and it works out good because I love that she does this also. She makes breakfast for me before I leave when I've visited her. And when she knows I'm coming, she makes sure she goes to the store ahead of time and buys the things that she'll have for this breakfast because it brings her great joy to serve this breakfast as she watches me experience great joy to eat this breakfast. And so it's always three eggs over medium crispy hash browns with red bell peppers grilled into the hash browns and lots of bacon. I am thankful every time I get up. First, to smell bacon when you wake up. You just, you just you start out thankful already, right? And then every bite. So thankfulness, it's... Think about this. Thankfulness, gratitude, it is our pure, it's our purest motive for obedience, is it not? Because as believers, in Christ, remember, in Christ, in Him, live in Him, as believers, we don't obey to earn our salvation. We didn't. We couldn't, right? We don't obey to keep our salvation. We can't. We can't. We can try to be good. If, our, if keeping our salvation was based on our obedience, well, at what point would it be not obedient enough? You know? And, and, and we would live in fear. And, and Jesus says, you don't live in fear, you live in me. Because I have paid it all. So thanksgiving for what he has done is our purest motive. It's not to get salvation, not to keep salvation, but because we have received salvation. It's our attitude, a response of thankfulness, a response of gratitude. Jesus, you have done it. You have done it. When I think about being thankful for things, I think about a friend of mine named Christian Dwyer. He's, Christian is just in his early 30s. He's a paraplegic, result of an accident when he was a college student. 10 years ago at Texas State, a spinal injury. And his dad and mom are, are especially good friends of mine, and, and the Lord's been real gracious to kind of circle back in relationship with Mike Dwyer. Mike reminds me a lot of Gene Cagle. I don't know if Gene's here today, because Mike is in his 70s. He's a general surgeon, and he still has sharp mind, steady hand, and he's still at it every day. I mean, the case he told me about last week, Gene... I'm going, that's pretty spectacular. And he goes, well, you know, the guy on the table, he didn't 
think anything was spectacular. He was asleep, and, and for me, I've kind of been there, done that, seen that 500 times. Um, he's a crack surgeon. If he could, oh, how he longs that he could heal his son's paraplegia. He so desires that. He and his wife have prayed earnestly for that. Christian has prayed earnestly for that, and God has chosen not to. Jesus could heal him. He certainly can. He's chosen not to. What is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed? Now, today, especially kind of in the last five years of our, of our culture, uh, perhaps some would say the greatest miracle Jesus ever performed was his first one, turning water to wine. I mean, like large 100-gallon barrels of, of water to wine, multiple, multiple of those. And it was just not running out. It was getting, the wine was better and better each time. Was that his greatest miracle? Was it giving sight to an adult man born blind? Or healing paralytics who likely had experienced spinal injury? The paralytic who was lowered through the roof by his buddies to Jesus, and Jesus said, get up and walk to him. The other paralytic that would beg by the pool of Siloam, get up and walk, Jesus said. Heal the blind, the man who was born blind from birth. These are miracles, right, that Jesus performed. These are organic, structural healings. It's not, ah, oh, there's a crick in my neck. I had this crick in my neck, and, the, and, the, and the, the pastor was talking about healing, and he kind of said, be healed. In the name of Jesus, oh, my crick is gone in my neck. But no, I was blind and now I see. I was paraplegic. And not only do I feel my legs and have full function of them, but without any PT, I'm picking up my mat and I'm walking off. I'm walking off. Jesus could do all these things. His, his healings were organic. He raised Je Lazarus from the dead. These are unexplainable. These are unnatural. These are supernatural. He is God. But none of these, none of these are his greatest miracle, are they? The greatest miracle performed by Jesus was his propitiation on the cross. He, God, incarnate, came to life as a human and lived among us. The Word was with us, the Word was God, and the Word became human and lived with us. And Jesus, God, in his humanness, lived what we could never do and can't do, a sinless life, right? He lived a sinless life. And when he got to the cross, in that moment when he said, it is finished, that was his greatest miracle. That was propitiation for sin for a whole world. One man's sin as substitution for the sins of all men and women and children, for all who he would call to call on his name, for all of us. That's a miracle. That's what Jesus did. In him, we experience a change in position. Before the creator of the universe, our position changes in him. That's something to be thankful for. 
as we reflect back. Jesus, you have moved us from being objects of your wrath to objects of your great love. You have moved us from deserving the penalty of our sin to having paid it for us. And I am thankful, Jesus. That motivates me not to get, not to keep, but because I have in you. Okay, so as he exhorts us, as Paul exhorts us to live in him with gratitude, he also exhorts us to live in his truth. And verse 8 and 9. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, Paul says, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Go ahead and pop up the message too. Let's see how Eugene Peterson translates this. He says, watch out for people who try to dazzle you with big words and intellectual double talk. They want to drag you off into endless arguments that never amount to anything. They, they spread their ideas through the empty traditions of human beings and empty superstitions of spirit beings. But that's not the way of Christ. Everything of God gets expressed in Him so that you can see and hear Him clearly. You don't need a telescope, a microscope, a horoscope to realize the fullness of Christ and the emptiness of the universe without him. When you come to Him, that fullness comes together for you too. There's so much we could talk about that I could bring up in terms of trying to uh, describe or deconstruct just some of the world's philosophies. You know, I think one of the, one, one of the, the major values that, has, that gets talked about, I would say from the beginning, but especially in, in America where there's freedom of thought and, and freedom of speech over our 250-year history. The idea of tolerance uh, gets communicated all the time, and tolerance, that's, that's actually a good word. There's a lot of things that are incredible uh, about tolerance because, in fact, we live in a nation uh, that was founded on, on tolerance. But there yet, as our culture has, has veered, especially in the last, I say beginning about 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years, the last five years even more than ever, there seems to be tolerance is what's kind of thrown at people if it seems as though they're saying something that's intolerant. And usually, the most intolerant statement we can have today is that Jesus Christ is God. And only in Him do we find forgiveness and right standing with God. But when you think about just any other false religion that man has come up with in the last thousands of years. Uh, there have literally been thousands of religions today. We have major, major world religions. Every one of them false, right? Islam, Hindu, Taoism, Buddhism. False. Why? Why is something false? Whenever you see that Jesus Christ is not acknowledged as the God of the universe, you see you see falseness. So how does every religion begin? Every religion begins essentially by someone's kind of standing up in the crowd and say, hey, 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 friends, hey, hey, community members, hey, people around me. Hey, you know, God has told me 
And now I'm going to tell you what he said. And then usually what would follow, the premise of almost every man-made religion would be this list of rules to do or to don't do, right? And the, and the, religious is, and the religion is premised on, well, to the extent that you do these good things and you don't do these bad things that have been prescribed against, that will kind of help your standing with the deity, right? Christianity is not moralism. It's not simply a set of teachings to adhere to. In fact, Christ did not come to teach about Christianity. Christ is Christianity. In John 6, he was approached by, by Pharisees, a group of Pharisees, and they asked him, Jesus, in John 6, 28, Jesus, tell us what must we do to do the works God requires? What were they asking him? They were asking from that man-centered perspective that if there's a God, then he has a list that he requires of us. And they said, Jesus, what is the list? Just tell us, what's the list? What does God require? And Jesus answered them this. He said, I am the list. Now, that's my paraphrase of his answer. What he said was, they asked for the list, and he said, believe in me. Believe in me. That was his answer. It's a one-item list. What is the list God requires? Believe in me, because I am God. Because, again, he came to be propitiation for our sin, to rescue us, to reconcile us, to redeem us, to restore us. The gospel is so antithetical, is it not, to, to our human nature and to the philosophies of our natural world. Uh, flip to this picture. So five weeks ago, Pam and I had an incredible opportunity to be in Baltimore with 800 international students from 83 different countries. And one of the uniquenesses of this student conference for international students is that its students are, are both believers, followers of Christ, and not. In fact, the majority don't know Christ who attended this conference, though they knew that they were coming to a conference, attending a conference that was about Jesus. And inside of the 400-plus non-believing students who attended were 58 Muslim students from 18 different Islamic nations attending a conference about Jesus. And they had even had agreed beforehand as people had invited them, hey, we're going to be involved in discussion each day, we're going to be looking at the teachings of Jesus, and we want you to, to kind of commit to being open, to, be, to, just, to engage openly in discussion. That's it. Not a commitment to adhere to what you're being taught, but to engage in discussion. And so this was a discussion group that Pam and I had every day over the, over the midst of the four-day conference. And we had, we had a student from, from left to right would be Iran, Egypt, and then there's a married couple just to our right, Hanif and Roja from Iran. They're married. Roja, by the way, is a, is a brand-new young believer. So she had come to faith just two months before coming to Baltimore. Her husband, not yet. And, they, and he attends the conference with her about Jesus. Beautiful to watch them as a couple. And then um, to the right on the bottom, the girl that's covered, Nazra from Oman. And then Zanif from Pakistan and Shazar from Pakistan. And just to the left of Shazar, Muna from Syria is a believer. So I want to tell this, this brief story about Nazra as we talk about what is true? What is true? And 
and how antithetical Christianity is to the world. So Nazareth, she's, she's very engaged in conversation over a three-day period. Very engaged. And on the third morning, she looks at me. We're, in the, we're all at the table together, and she says, okay, I, just, I have to ask this question. I've asked other Christians this question, but I want to ask in front of the whole table here. She says, okay, Jerry. So Christians who believe in Jesus, they're forgiven. They believe that they're forgiven for all their sin, right? And I said, yes. She said, so they can do anything they want. See, that's her real question. That's what she can't reconcile. Well, it's like, this, by that alone, what she's thinking, because the gospel is antithetical to the world, that's why Christianity can't be true, because that's ridiculous. Oh, just believe in Jesus and do whatever you want. Well, of course, there's a nuanced answer, but, but I told Nazareth, I said, right away, I said, first, to give you a direct answer to your question, so those who have believed in Jesus for the substitutionary death of their sin can sin without consequence of their eternity, of their standing before God. And I said, Nazareth, yes. Yes. But why is that? It's because of the one who died for us. Jesus is God. See, it, come, it all comes back to, again, to who is he? He did it. And he is able to do it. I couldn't die for your sins. I have my own sins to account for. Jesus was sinless. And as God was sufficient to be complete in his propitiation and his substitution to satisfy God's wrath for all who would call on him. I have to tell you, though, that for me personally, when I was wrestling with the gospel as a 17-year-old, this was one of my sticking points. Because I remember asking my friend who had been sharing the gospel with me in this situation, on this day, for the last seven hours, he had been, well, yeah, we had been discussing Christ. And, and a lot of it was, was arguments and, and just, you know, me going, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. And, and saying some of the things that Nazareth said, but ultimately, there came to a point at the end of this day where I began to unmistakably sense that the God of the universe had intersected my life in this day, and he was challenging me to acknowledge him. I, I, kept, I began to hear in my heart and in my mind Jesus saying, I am God. I am true. I died for you. You need me. Apart from me, you cannot know me. With me, you know me. And I know you, and I will indwell you. And, and so my friend Jim, as I would express these things, he keeps saying, okay, well, let's do it right now. And I'm like, do what right now? It's like, well, let's trust Christ. And I'm like, well, I really do believe this is true, but it's like, you know, I want to do this six years from now because I'm about to go to Texas State next semester, you know, and it's like, I want to be able to do all the things that I want to do, and then in about six years after I settle down, get married, have my job, you know, then I want to come back and make this decision because it'd be a lot easier to be good then than to be good now. And Jim told me, I'll never forget, he said, he said, you've missed the whole point. That's what he said to me. He was 17, I'm 17. I'm telling him these things. My, my reasons for six years from now would be good. And he says... You've missed the whole point. And he tells me this as a 17-year-old. He said, 
He said, coming into faith with Jesus, in Jesus, is not about doing this and this and this and that and stopping to doing that and that and that. He said, you can't do that. He said, you're kind of picturing that you want to kind of get a little better. You want to be better at being better before you want to make this decision because then it might be more fitting for you. And he said, he said actually, he said, you never, as humans, we don't ever get to that point where we just want to be better and then we think, okay, I'm ready now. He said, the, you come to Jesus in your acknowledgement that you're not better, that you are simple, that you stand before him guilty and condemned. And he said, but this is what will happen. I will come into your life. He said, Jesus will come into your life and he will change your life from the inside out. He will begin to change your heart, your motives, your desires. And I looked at him like he was crazy. I said, there's no way I can picture that happening. I was, and I was picturing all the things that there's no way Jesus was going to change my desires for in any kind of radical way. But I came to the point where I acknowledged that Jesus, I need you. And all of a sudden, I, I, I felt like I was unable to deny him beyond the next hour of that conversation. So, is it true? Is it true? Can you flip to the next slide? And I'm going to circle back just to, to sum something up. As we live in His truth, I think it matters, right, if it's true or not. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, he said, if Christ has not been raised, then my preaching is useless, and so is your faith. He told all the believers in Corinth that his preaching is useless, Paul. He said, so my entire endeavor, my entire vocation, my entire life for the last 30 years is worthless if Christ has not been raised. In your faith, it's worthless, right? I think we tend to ask the wrong questions about God, do we not? As, as people, as humans, we tend to ask question, this question about God. Well, who do I think God is? Or, or we might be in a discussion with other people about God. Well, who do you think that God is? And I think this really, you know, I, I see why that question gets asked. It's a natural question. But it makes me smile, too, because when it comes to an issue of, of truth, it's not really, that's not what matters, right? It's not our, every, it's not just, Hey, but if, but if you're following Christianity, your life was better, right? Wouldn't it still be worth it even if it wasn't true? I go back to Paul. No, it's worthless. It's worthless if it's not true. The object of our faith matters. And that's part of the paradox of God, right? That uh, apart from knowing Him, these things seem like such paradox, but in Him, we experience freedom in surrender. Strength in weakness. Power in submission. So living in his power. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. 
Paul says at the very beginning of Romans that Jesus proved that he was God with power by his resurrection from the dead. He is true. And I need to move towards not unpacking this as much, but to, but to focus on this, the power. And by the way, in, in a couple of weeks, we're going to get to celebrate baptism. Though here, as we look at living in his power, Paul is making clear to the Colossians that your salvation, your right standing with God, is not as a result of circumcision or obedience, but it's a circumcision that's spiritual, that is not done by human hands. It's a circumcision of your heart, he says. And Paul says that again in multiple of his epistles in chapter 2 to the Romans. is a circumcision of the heart. He says a spiritual transformation has taken place in your relationship with Jesus where he has come in, he has changed you, he has transformed you. And in his power, proved by his resurrection from the dead, he declares our position in him secure. Go ahead and flip to the next slide for me. I'm going to skip the message and go to the next one. The last part of our passage, in his forgiveness. We live in him, we walk in him, in his forgiveness. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, defeated two enemies. He defeated sin. He defeated the consequences of our sin and the power of sin over our lives because he indwells us. And he also defeated the enemy of Satan on the cross. Let's go ahead and put the message up because it's just so, it's, it's so visual here. It says, when you were st stuck in your old self, you were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive right along with Christ. It's his initiative. He called us. He pursued us. Think of it. All sin was forgiven. The slate wiped clean. The old arrest warrant canceled, nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants. So I'm about Satan and his minions in the spiritual universe. The spiritual tyrants, he stripped them in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. Just in reference to, to conquering generals returning with the, all, all the booty and the bounty of their, uh, of their victory, and including the conquered peoples, conquered kings, conquered um, other generals walking behind them in nakedness, in submission, because he had completely won. He says, this is what Jesus did on the cross. He won. He defeated sin. He defeated Satan. Okay, next picture as we're finishing. Again, back to this picture to the right of me and Pam, Hanif, and Roja. Go ahead and hit the next picture. Three weeks ago, this is Roja being baptized on a Sunday morning. 
Because she is Iranian, you see the seats are kind of empty because they came back in the afternoon and there was a small group of about 15 people because Rosia is still really concerned about, about hourly who she's involving in her circle of, of acknowledging that she's following Christ. What's incredible is her, is her husband, Hanif, who doesn't know Jesus yet, is really excited about Rosia's belief in Christ. He has seen the fruit of her, you know, Jesus just accentuates all of our gifts, doesn't he? And everything that's good in us that he's given us with. Um, and to see them together, to see her look to him with love, um, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I told Hanif five weeks ago at the end of our four weeks, her husband, I said, Hanif, I said, you know that the God of the universe is pursuing you. I know that you know. And he just smiled. And I said, and, and some, some backstory from him, his parents both work for the Iranian government. He has much to lose, and he's fearful for how his parents will respond, but he absolutely, um, he's not going to be able to not respond to Christ much longer because you can see it. You can see it in every interaction with him. Um, you know, he's just kind of, for him, it's kind of, he has his own perhaps six-year plan of like, I was going to Texas State. You know, let's do it then. But, um, but, I won't be surprised if it's any day for Hanif. We obey not to earn our salvation, not to keep our salvation, but because we have it. We are compelled by Christ's love to live for ourselves and not for him. To live not for ourselves, but for him, I'm sorry. For he died for us. He was raised again. Let's uh, flip to the corporate prayer as I finish. I know, Keith, I think you've typically been doing this after the last song, but I'm going to go ahead and, and, and have this corporate prayer now. And then we'll we finish with one more song. Is that right still? All right. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your death in my place. I submit myself to you to live and to walk, not for myself, but for you. As I remember your truth, your forgiveness, and your power in and through me. You are worthy. You are God. In your name, Jesus. Amen.